No stairway. Denied. It started in San Francisco with a flower in our head. W-A-K-O. Now it's 1971. And it's together everywhere. And it's together everywhere. Everywhere. Hello. Welcome to Songs in the Key of, a podcast about songs. These might be old songs, new songs or middle-aged songs, anything that takes my fancy really. Sometimes these shows will be themed around an idea, a person, a genre or some other concept. Other times they will simply reflect my latest obsessions, my new favourite bands, those songs I can't get out of my head. So let's get on with it. Five years ago, David Hepworth, the rather esteemed music journalist behind Smash Hits, Q and Word magazine, all sadly no longer with us, wrote a book called 1971, Never a Dull Moment, in which he demonstrated without a shadow of a doubt that the titular year was definitely, unquestionably and absolutely the finest year in rock and roll history, indubitably. More recently, comedian James Acaster has posited that 2016 was actually the finest year in rock and roll history. But I think it's fairly clear that when you pitch, I like it when you sleep for you are so beautiful yet so unaware of it, by the 1975, against Led Zeppelin 4, What's Going On, or Hunky Dory, it's going to be a pretty bloody ending for the 21st century interlopers. So, In honour of the fact that a bunch of astoundingly fantastic albums all celebrate their 50th anniversary this year, giving Mojo magazine a very rare opportunity to put the likes of Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin or David Bowie on their cover, let's have a listen to 10 songs in the key of 1971. Let's start with Carole King, because it would be rude not to. Carole King's album Tapestry looks like an unassuming affair. Its cover bears the image of a dimly lit room with a woman in jeans and a jumper sitting beside a window while a tabby cat, called Telemachus for all you fans of Homer's Odyssey out there, tries to steal the limelight. But that's what cats do. And yet when you listen to the music hidden behind that artwork, you will be blown away. By the time Carole King recorded Tapestry, she had 13 years of working in the music business under her belt. She'd written Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow for the Shirelles at the age of 17. Before Tapestry came out, she'd already written The Locomotion for Little Eva, later made even more famous by Kylie Minogue, Up on the Roof for The Drifters, and I'm Into Something Good for Herman's Hermits. You could say that come 1971, Carole King knew her way around a good song. Tapestry is the definition of an all-killer, no-filler album. Each one of these songs is widely known. I feel the earth move, so far away, it's too late, home again, beautiful, way over yonder, you've got a friend, where you lead, will you still love me tomorrow, smack water jack, tapestry, you make me feel like a natural woman. The Beatles may have been the best band the world has ever seen, but even they had to dilute their album with things like Octopus's Garden and Obladi Obladar every now and then. You won't find any such equivalent on Tapestry. The song I've gone for is You've Got a Friend. 
It's delicate and sparse, but as warm as one of your grandma's knitted blankets, and it's so utterly heartfelt. Carol King had made her living working in the Brill Building. She churned out songs the way other people would churn out hat pins, tubes of toothpaste, or tins of beans. This should have meant her songs were as soulless as hat pins, tubes of toothpaste, or tins of beans. But listen to those lyrics, listen to the tenderness with which she plays the piano. She means every last word of this song. Every last word. When you're down and troubled educated child when it came to pop music and to my immense and long-lasting shame it wasn't until I was about 17 that I heard any David Bowie. This I now appreciate was unacceptable behaviour. What happened when I was 17 though was I turned up to an A-level music lesson and was asked to analyse a piece of music. Usually that would involve trying to identify parallel fifths in a piece of Bach or notating the second clarinet part in Beethoven's fifth. But this particular music lesson was different. We had to listen to David Bowie's changes. It was a blinding revelation. Those thick rising strings and piano at the beginning, giving way to a parping saxophone and driving drums, and then Bowie's velveteen voice. I mean, the annoying thing about David Bowie is that he makes everything sound so easy. But try and sing one of his songs and you'll realise he really was some kind of starman who'd fallen to earth. Changes from Hunky Dory, the same album on which you'll find Ogie, Pretty Things, Kooks and of course Life on Mars, is one of those songs that feels like it has always existed. It seems hard to believe that anyone had to imagine it in their head, write it down and record it. Surely it's always been as present as mountains, streams and the lesser spotted warbler. And the lyrics, oh the lyrics. Predating Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane and the Thin White Duke, the words to changes form a prophecy of what was to come for the chameleon of pop. 
Every time I thought I'd got it made, it seemed the taste was not so sweet. So I turned myself to face me, but I've never caught a glimpse how the others must see the faker. I'm much too fast to take that test. And my time was running wild A million dead-end streets And every time I thought I got it made It seemed the taste was not so sweet So I turned myself to face me But I've never caught a glimpse How the others must see the faker I'm much too fast to take that test Ch-ch-ch-changes Turn and face the strain Ch-ch-changes Don't wanna be a richer man There's a beautiful moment in the Cameron Crowe movie, Almost Famous, where the members of the fictional band Stillwater, together with their entourage of band-aids, break out into a cathartic sing-along to Elton John's Tiny Dancer. It is a gorgeous moment in the film, one that lifts it in a way I cannot quite put my finger on. It is indisputably a delicious song, wallowing in a glow of carefree youth. On first listen, you might mistake this tiny dance for the title, the Blue Jean Baby, LA Lady, Seamstress for the Band, as being just the kind of groupie that Kate Hudson's character in Almost Famous, Penny Lane, swears she isn't. But this isn't just an expression of youthful, no-strings hedonism. There's a depth in the relationship that Bernie Taupin is writing about. The lines about the tiny dancer watching on as the piano man performs on stage shows a profound connection between them. She sings the songs, the words she knows, the tune she hums, because she knows him and knows what his songs mean. It's one of those songs that the more you think about it, the more it could just bring you to tears. And that rolling piano riff, the rich resplendent strings, the steel guitar, and the gorgeous warm gospel choir harmonies at the end, There is precisely nothing to not like about this uplifting song. Blue jean baby, LA lady, seamstress for the band.
I occasionally find myself gravitating towards songs, books, films and podcasts, burning with righteous indignation at the failure of much religion and many of the religious to either or both live up to their own high exacting standards and or, more often, to understand what their own faith is actually all about. The most obvious example these days is to consider some attitudes towards the LGBT plus community where, in the most extreme situations, some particularly fundamentalist churches will see absolutely no contradiction between reading in their Bibles of a God of love and holding up slogans saying God hates fags. But the fact is that religion has been using misunderstandings of the faith it purports to follow as a convenient front for some of the most horrendous acts of segregation, repression and violence in the world for thousands of years. In her book Searching for Sunday, Rachel Held Evans, a person of faith who had grown rather disillusioned with traditional forms of church, wrote how 300 years after Jesus died on a Roman cross, the Emperor Theodosius made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Christians who had once been persecuted by the Empire became the Empire, and those who had once denied the sword took up the sword against their neighbours. Pagan temples were destroyed, the patrons forced to convert to Christianity. Christians whose ancestors had been martyred in gladiatorial combat now attended the games, cheering on the bloodshed. Many people, and you may well be one of them, perceive much of the church as being little more than a hypocritical society, only too keen on casting the first stone just so as to protect their ever-fragile status quo. In a blog post, Rachel Held Evans wrote once how she had left the church because Sometimes it felt like a cult or a country club, and I wasn't sure which was worse. All of which, of course, leads me directly and rather obviously into talking about Jethro Tull's classic 1971 album, Aqualung. Aqualung represents Ian Anderson's thorough rejection of the Christian religion as it has been exposed to him and he is rather less generously spirited towards it than the writer of Searching for Sunday. In the liner notes to the 2015 reissue of the album as remastered by Stephen Wilson of Porcupine Tree and Stephen Wilson fame, Ian Anderson says this, I think what I was saying was that it's not about the religious values that we get from reading or believing every word in the Bible, or the ritualised religious services and ceremonies, often pomp-filled as they can be in certain branches of Christianity. That's not the important issue. The important issue is to see the spirituality in all people, even in the character referred to in the Aqualung song or in Cross-Eyed Mary, a prostitute. I was trying to say that there's some innate sense of spirituality in us all. Anderson's problem, though, was that what he aspired to see, a kind of groovy world full of people embracing their own and each other's spirituality with generosity and welcoming, was not what was actually present in the world. Hymn 43 addresses this brilliantly. It's a bleak, world-weary comparison 
between what is and what is said to be. If Jesus saves, well, he better save himself from the gory glory seekers who use his name in death. Oh, Jesus, save me. Ian Anderson rasps out the lyrics of the song with a chugging guitar and a kind of honky-tonk piano to accompany him. It's an angry, bilious song that takes no prisoners, and nor should it. A father high in heaven Smile down upon your son yeah. Was busy with his money towards that defining image of a prism set against a stark black background, a single beam of white light entering on one side and a full glorious spectrum of colour pouring out of the other. This being the artwork to their 1973 magnum opus Dark Side of the Moon, which explored themes of time, the blur between sanity and insanity, and death. Or perhaps your mind will fast forward six years further to the rock operatic spectacle that was The Wall, complete with the famous anthem of Another Brick in the Wall Part 2, more commonly referred to as We Don't Need No Education, alongside arguably better songs like Run Like Hell and Comfortably Numb, the latter of which appeared on my Songs in the Key of Troubled Minds podcast a few episodes ago. But Pink Floyd had many more strings to their bow than these two admittedly stellar records. You can kind of split their career up into three sections, the psychedelic underground weirdness of their formative years, heavily under the influence of the heavily under the influence Sid Barrett, the prog rock magnificence that saw them through the 70s, and the stadium rockery that pretty much defined them from the 80s onwards following the departure of Roger Waters. Of course, there's a fair bit of bleeding from one section into the other, as the psychedelia informs the prog rock experimentalism, and then the progressive rock allows the stadium anthems to take an imaginative shape. And it's in metal that we hear some of the evolution from the first phase to the second. And it's glorious. The opening track, One of These Days, is a spectacular sound to behold. It is one of those tunes you have to crank up to full volume, set the lights down low, fall onto the sofa and let the music wash over you. The jaggedy rhythms, the distorted vocals with their distinctive ominous threat. One of these days I'm going to cut you into little pieces. And of course, that snippet of another scary tune that sent thousands of kids 
scurrying behind the sofa, the theme tune to Doctor Who. It's a dark, shadowy, brooding tune full of sturm and drang over and undertones. Stylistically, it feels like a foretaste of what was to come just two years later with Dark Side of the Moon. This is where the band put aside their field recordings of themselves eating breakfast, as happened on the preceding Atom Heart Mother, or hanging out with several species of small furry animals gathered together and grooving with a pit, as you'll hear on Umagumma. This is where everything begins to get finely honed, polished, and really rather wonderful. January chapter of David Hepworth's book about 1971 opens with a list of defining features of the year. The last days of pounds, shilling and pence. Average salary for a working man, £2,000 per annum. A house in an up-and-coming area in North London worth £20,000. Bitter, 11p a pint. Cigarettes, 27p a packet. Long player records, £2.15. Bernie Inns, rump steak, button mushrooms, tomato, chips, roll and butter, apple pie and cream for 80p. Hepworth's description paints a picture of a foreign landscape, a time long before Spotify, vaping and Love Island. A time so long before Brexit we hadn't even joined the EU, EEC or EC in the first place. And yet the lyrics of Marvin Gaye's What's Going On couldn't be more pertinent right now. Ecological crises, futile wars, racial division. It's all depressingly familiar, 50 years on. At the time he recorded it, Barry Gordy, the head of Motown, couldn't understand what was going on with what's going on. It was a million miles away from the crowd-pleasing pop songs he was usually expected to churn out. 
This was the man who had had phenomenal hits with How Sweet It Is To Be Loved By You, I Heard It Through The Grapevine, and Ain't No Mountain High Enough, the latter being a duet with Tammy Terrell. And so the album he recorded was a complete departure on every single level, a soul-infused concept album where the whole point was that it was not about any song in particular, rather the experience of listening to the whole record as one continuous piece. The differences appeared at every level. On the title track, Marvin Gaye wanted a local bass player, James Jamison, to play, but he didn't turn up to the session, so they hunted him down and found him drunk out of his mind in a nearby bar. Still, they got him back to the studio and he managed to get his takedown in one, lying down on the studio floor because he was too drunk to stand. But the song from the album I'm going to play here is Inner City Blues. And you know that bit I was saying earlier on about how the album couldn't be more pertinent 50 years on? 50 years from the release of What's Going On, Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos, neither of them, I suspect, high up on the taxman's Christmas card list, blasted themselves into space on a rocket fueled by bravado, hubris and arrogance with the latter being unself-aware enough to thank all of Amazon's customers for making it possible, as if, when ordering that Christmas present for their grands, these customers' main intention had been to inflate Mr Bezos's ego just a little more. And the words of inner city blues come ringing in your ears. Rockets, moonshots, spend it on the have-nots. Money, we make it, before we see it, you take it. One of the biggest albums of 1971, and in fact one of the biggest albums of all time, yes, aside from the six others I've mentioned so far and the three that will follow this section, was a display of blues rock magnificence that still leaves schoolboys awestruck as they seek to recreate every single moment of the unwinding guitar part to its most famous track in bedrooms and school practice rooms around the world. In his book about 1971, David Hepworth writes of Led Zeppelin IV that it was a glorious grab bag of the polished in the gimcrack, the rootsy and the brilliantined, of hot-fused Midlands folk and the cheap whiskey of the Delta lands, of ancient and modern, of quiet and loud, of hippie philosophy and apprentice boy aggression, such as had never been done before 
and probably never was to be done again, of rock and roll and progressive rock, of mock profundity and the odd, genuinely bleak insight. It sounds like the actual caverns depicted on its artwork. It feels like the very water coming through the levee. It has the supreme daftitude of the Dave Clark Five married to the sexual threat of muddy waters. Some called it progressive, which was the word applied to anything longer than five minutes around that time. In fact, it was anything but. Whereas some of their contemporaries seemed to be trying to make sounds that belonged in classical music, Led Zeppelin seemed, in fact, to be trying to tunnel back to the crudest basics. I'm not quite sure I agree with that bit about the crudest basics. There's nothing particularly crude or basic about Led Zeppelin, really. One of the things that fans of the band love so much is their determined imagination, ever straining to come up with something more and more inventive coupled with their virtuosity. They may have been inspired by the blues and roots music of Muddy Waters and Robert Johnson, but the eventual sound, designed to fill immense concert venues rather than small bars in Greenwood, Mississippi, was a world away from the songs that informed it, which is precisely why Led Zeppelin's detractors, and such people do actually exist, don't like the band. Blues purists, and I'm thinking of the likes of Steve Buscemi's character Seymour in the excellent 2001 movie Ghost World here, abhor Led Zeppelin because those crude basics are completely lost in the sprawling guitar solos and megalithic drums and the big production. Instead, I'd prefer to go along with the earlier part of what David Hepworth was saying about the glorious grab bag of the polished and the gimcrack, the rootsy and the brilliantined of hot-fused Midlands folk and the cheap whiskey of the Delta lands of ancient and modern and quiet and loud of hippie philosophy and apprentice boy aggression. Led Zeppelin are such an important band because actually they escape classification. You could call them a blues rock band, but that kind of misses the point. They put a whole bunch of ideas in a melting pot and created something brand new. So no wonder blues purists don't like them. Led Zeppelin's music isn't about deference to a particular medium. It's more like a great musical experiment with Page, Plant, Bonham and Jones running around the place maniacally like kids in candy stores. The late 60s and early 70s were a time of musical self-discovery for many bands. Famously, Fairport Convention reinvented themselves as a folk rock act, taking English folk music as their inspiration after hearing how the band, over in America, had allowed themselves to fall under the thrall of roots music for their album, Music from Big Pink. But while Richard Thompson believed at the time, in his own words, we'll never be that good at American music, we should be looking at something far more homegrown. Led Zeppelin seemed more confident to beg, borrow and steal from across the pond, applying their own English sensibilities, complete with references to The Lord of the Rings, to create something brand new. For this episode, I've chosen to play a snippet of the final song from Led Zeppelin 4, When the Levee Breaks. A typical example of the sprawling magnificence of a band who take the original inspiration of a bluesy tune from somewhere deep in Mississippi and turn it into something else. As Jimmy Page said in an interview with Uncut magazine back in 2008, you've got backwards harmonica, backwards echo, phasing and there's also flanging. And at the end you get this super dense sound in layers that's all built around the drum track.
and then you've got Robert constant in the middle and everything starts to spiral around him. It's all done with panning. Added to all of that, it turns out, aside from Robert Plant's vocals, everything else on the song was slowed down to create that heavy reverb that defines it. Which all goes to show that this album is anything but crude and basic. Just listen to this. I love Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous, see my earlier section on Tiny Dancer for further details, there is one part of that film that irritates the absolute pedant in me beyond belief. In a scene set in 1969, protagonist William Miller has been instructed by his older sister, now departed, to seek an exciting life as an air stewardess, to look under her bed to find all the records she's had to hide from her overbearing mum, one of those albums being Joni Mitchell's Blue. And I think you'll find that album wasn't actually released until two years later, in the most hallowed of years, 1971. There are other egregious anachronisms, 90s Pepsi cans, chem-like glow sticks and post-it notes that wouldn't appear in stationery cupboards until later in the decade. But for a film that is such a manifest love letter to music, it's that inclusion of Joni Mitchell's Blue together with the Rolling Stones' Get Your Yaya's Out, that stands out like several sore thumbs. Of course, you can kind of understand why Cameron Crowe insisted on sticking blue in that time-travelling bag under William Miller's sister's bed. It's one of the most important, most influential albums of all time. If you're a singer-songwriter, there's most likely some element of what appears on this record that has influenced your own songs. It regularly features in all those greatest albums of all time polls that music magazines and broadsheet newspapers love to run every so often. It's an album that dwells a great deal on the highs and lows of relationships, the absolute devotion of my old man that mirrors the infatuation found on Elton John's Tiny Dancer, through to the devastation of the breakups found on A Case of You and that most heartbreaking of Christmas breakup songs easily knocking that one by wham into a cocked hat river. California though is less about a person, although there's a bit of romance and heartbreak in there, than it is about a place, and an idea of a place, an idea of safety, an idea of home, a place that forms a sanctuary from the wars raging out in the big wide world, an escape from the pain of what other people can do to you when you are out of your depth. California, I'm coming home. Oh, will you take me as I am, strung out on another man, 
California, I'm coming home. Sometimes all you need is home. Sitting in a park in Paris, France, reading the news, and it sure looks bad. They won't give peace a chance. That was just a dream some of us had. Still a lot of lands to see, but I wouldn't want to stay here. It's too old and cold and settled in its ways here. All the California, California, coming home. I'm gonna see the folks I dig. I'll even kiss a sunset pig. California, I'm coming home. I met a redneck on a Grecian isle who did the goat dance very well. He gave me back my smile, but he kept my camera in a cell. Oh, the rogue, the red, red rogue. There are a million reasons to like Harry Nilsson and quite a few of them appear on his 1971 album, Nilsson Schmilsson. As might be expected from the careless throwaway joke of the album's name, Mr. Nilsson was not one to take himself too seriously, but the music, on the other hand, there was no holding back there. In some ways, you could argue, as many people have, Harry Nilsson was doing his level best to pick up from where the Beatles had left off. In particular, there are clear influences of Paul McCartney, the bounciness and lightness of touch of his poppier, more fun songs, through to the rich sentimentality of his big ballads. Having only recently taken the plunge in actually buying stuff by Harry Nilsson, a five-disc box set containing Nilsson Schmilsson, a little touch of Schmilsson in the night, Son of Schmilsson, Harry and Aerial Ballet, I can already see plenty of opportunity for the inclusion of Nilsson songs in future themed episodes of Songs in the Key of. But for now, let's focus on possibly Harry Nilsson's biggest song, in all definitions of that word. Without You was famously covered by Badfinger, Mariah Carey, and, say it very quietly, Richard Clayderman, which I suspect is how I first came across the song in the first place. It is the power ballad to end all power ballads, gently unfolding as a tender, delicate piece of heartbreaking songwriting, slowly introducing strings and drums and increasing the volume to spine-chilling effect. The music snob in me is reeling at the choice of this. It is, he says, overblown, over-emotional and overindulgent, a calculated, cynical tug at the heartstrings designed purely to get heartbroken Bridget Joneses to buy more ice cream. And yes, it is all of those things, probably, maybe, possibly, but it is also rather magical and profound and mesmerising and a devastatingly accurate portrayal of heartbreak and utter, utter sorrow. No, I can't forget this evening or your face as you were leaving But I guess that's just the way the story goes You always smile, but in your eyes your sorrow shows Yes, it shows No, I can't forget tomorrow When I think of all my sorrow Well, I had you there But then I let you go 
With that Joni Mitchell song I was talking about just now, I said about how sometimes all you need is home, and sometimes it isn't. For the last song on this podcast episode, I've plumped for Home is Where the Hatred Is from Gil Scott Heron's polemical masterpiece from 1971, Pieces of a Man. I played a song from that album a few episodes back on my Funk and Soul special, Songs in the Key of a Scorching Hot Summer. The Revolution Will Not Be Televised is probably Scott Heron's most famous song, but Pieces of a Man is filled with pure poetry. Home is where the hatred is, is absolutely devastating, a brutally honest account of addiction, what it does to someone and how skewered the system is for those trying to climb their way out of the pain, distress and horror of the situation. It is absolutely, utterly devastating. Home is where I live, inside my white powder dreams. Home was once an empty vacuum that's filled now with my silent screams. Home is where the needle marks try to heal my broken heart. And it might not be such a bad idea if I never, if I never went home again. Musically, it grooves along over a funky, swaggering bass line, but Gil Scott Heron's voice is clearly on the brink as he outlines the complete pain of the addiction the song portrays. For such an ugly subject, it is phenomenally beautiful. A junkie walking through the twilight I'm on my way home Kick it, quit it, kick it, 
in the key of 1971, arguably the finest year in the history of rock and or roll. I hope you liked it. Let me know what you thought by responding to the appropriate post on Instagram using at songs in the key of. Which Stone Cold 1971 classics did I miss out? Or perhaps you have a counter theory that a different year of our Lord is the absolute annus mirabilis of music. Whatever you think, I'd love to hear from you. I'll be back sooner or later with songs in the key of something or someone or other else. In the meantime, have a marvellous few days and nights till we meet again. Thank you.